0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: 1989 was a year that surprised almost everyone.
0: It's an historic and a highly emotional moment. For practical purposes, the Berlin Wall has been all but torn down. A crossing which in the past has claimed the lives of hundreds can
1: now be made safely by joyous tens of thousands. I'm Sarah Percy, and this is Why the Cold War Still Matters. In this special series, we're hearing the stories which explain how the Cold War ended and what we can learn from them today. We've heard the most recognizable story of the tense standoff between the superpowers, how protest and dissent tore down the Berlin Wall from the inside, and we've heard how the failing Soviet economy caused an accidentally revolutionary leader to lose his grip on the Soviet empire.
2: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall.
3: Democracy was not the concept that was
1: imaginable. Well, in situations like that, you simply, you fight for your survival. There are a lot of remarkable things about the end of the Cold War and a lot of lessons to be learned. After all, it fundamentally changed how the world was organized. It changed the nature of power in the international system. It dismantled governments and societies. But perhaps most remarkable of all was that this transformation really took place over one tumultuous year and that it happened peacefully. This episode tells the story of 1989. The story starts in January, when the Iron Curtain seemed as solid as ever. The East German leader, Erich Honecker, announced confidently that the Berlin Wall would still be standing in 50 or even 100 years. But by November, the Wall was rubble and the Cold War was over. In this series, we've talked a lot about how the Berlin Wall came to be the most enduring symbol of the Cold War. An armed barrier dividing east from west, splitting families and friends and a whole city down the middle. It was such a powerful symbol that its collapse caused the collapse of the Soviet empire and brought us to the end of the Cold War. So why was it built? Hope Harrison, who's an associate professor of international relations at George Washington University, tells us why.
4: Well, the two German states were created in 1949 in the wake of a confrontation over Berlin after Stalin blockaded Berlin and the West responded with an airlift. And then in 1952, the Soviets closed down the border between East Germany and West Germany, militarizing the long border between East Germany and West Germany. That meant that after 1952, the only place in Germany for free movement between East and West between communism and democracy was in Berlin. The East German leaders wanted to shut that down. They called it the loophole, the last loophole. Walter Ulbricht, who was the leader of East Germany, pushed the Soviets and begged the Soviets let us close this last loophole in Berlin so East Germans can't leave. So they can't keep escaping and, you know, moving to democracy and capitalism in West Berlin. And believe it or not, for eight years, the Soviets resisted this East German request to close the border in Berlin. The Soviets said, are you crazy? will look terrible sealing the border uh, in Berlin. Everyone will say communism is a failure, it lost. They couldn't keep their people without sealing the border. And so uh, the Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev, told the East German leader, find another way to keep your people from leaving. But he couldn't do that. And by the summer of 1961, more than 1,000 East Germans were fleeing from East Berlin to West Berlin every day. So finally, the Soviet leaders gave the East German leaders the approval to seal the border in Berlin and to build the Berlin Wall, which they did beginning on August 13, 1961. The wall began as barbed wire and then concrete blocks, and it took you know, a year to really encircle West Berlin with the Berlin Wall. And then they proceeded to make it stronger and stronger. There were four generations of the Berlin Wall built over the 28 years it stood.
1: The wall stood as a permanent reminder of the division between East and West terrible repression was necessary to make it stand.
4: The Berlin Wall was in fact an entire death strip that had wall on either side of it and in between the two walls were guard dogs, armed guards with an order to shoot people trying to escape, anti-tank barriers, signal wires, floodlights, All sorts of obstacles so that someone trying to escape from East Berlin across the wall into West Berlin would have a very difficult time doing so. It's hard
1: to imagine a bustling world city suddenly split in half.
4: It was a united city, a regular city, a world metropolis. And this for many people came from out of the blue. And so some people it meant they couldn't go to work anymore because they lived on one side of the wall and they were working on the other side of the wall. Or it meant they couldn't go to school anymore or they couldn't visit their parents or their girlfriend or their brother on the other side of the wall. It broke people's hearts. Um, It was a very dramatic, painful development for anyone who had a life and friends and loved ones in the other half of Berlin. People hated the
1: wall and what it represented. If the wall were to collapse, it would mean freedom for East Berliners. It would also signal that neither the Soviet Union nor the East German government had the authority to keep control anymore. But no one could imagine that happening. Anna Funder, author of Stasiland and a longtime commentator on
2: East German history, explains. I was an undergraduate student, 87, 88, in West Berlin, in the walled city. And I had friends who had been writers and painters and dissenters who were kicked out of East Germany, so we would meet in a cafe or a restaurant in Kreuzberg. At the end of the street, there was the wall. And sometimes some person would pipe up and say, oh, I wonder if that wall had ever come down, you know, what would it be like? And these were people whose, you know, former spouses and children and their entire lives had taken place over that wall, but they couldn't get to them. So their past was 200 metres away and yet utterly inaccessible and when this kind of thing was mentioned they would be laughed at really i mean as if they were talking about a fantasy or about leprechauns or about something so incredibly unlikely to happen that really it wasn't worth discussing the fall
1: of the berlin wall was a step in a long road of events and to work out why it fell we need to understand the events of 1989 itself particularly from inside the Iron Curtain. In January 1989, George H.W. Bush was sworn in as President of the United States. Like all presidents, he gave an inaugural address. Inaugural addresses aren't normal political speeches. They're usually poetic, inspirational, designed to set up the grand themes a president would pursue. Bush's was remarkably prophetic, and it would prove to be more true than anyone would have predicted.
0: We live in a peaceful, prosperous time, but we can make it better. For a new breeze is blowing, and a world refreshed by freedom seems reborn. For in man's heart, if not in fact, the day of the dictator is over. The totalitarian era is passing, It's old ideas blown away like leaves from an ancient, lifeless tree. A new breeze is blowing, and a nation, refreshed by freedom, stands ready to push on. There's new ground to be broken, and new action to be taken.
1: Signs of change were beginning to occur. In March 1989, the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan. They'd been there for 10 years.
3: According to the latest edition of the Weekly Literary Gazette, almost 15,000 Soviet soldiers and officers died, and nearly 37,000 were crippled. But it was a proud Lieutenant-General Boris Gromov, the Afghan force commander, who crossed into the Soviet border town of Termez at five minutes to midday, and said he would never look back. We have fulfilled our internationalist duty to the end, he said.
1: To the watching world, and people inside the Eastern Bloc were watching closely, Removing troops from Afghanistan signaled that the Soviets were no longer able to sustain huge military operations abroad. If you were a reformer inside the Iron Curtain, there was a lot to suggest that now might be the moment to make changes. Two countries in the Eastern Bloc took momentous decisions. In May 1989, a moderate Hungarian government broke the first hole through the Iron Curtain. Hungary was tired of maintaining security along its border with Austria. The leaders of both countries met and symbolically cut through the barbed wire fence along the border. Hungary pulled down
0: its Iron Curtain with the West in May. The watchtowers stand empty. The barbed wire no longer an obstacle. 6,000 have already walked to freedom. Many more are expected to join them.
1: In June 1989, Poland held its first free elections since before World War II. The Solidarity Movement won. Solidarity had caused huge problems for the Polish regime, who had to declare martial law in the early 1980s to get it to shut down. Andrew Phillips is an associate professor in international relations at the University of Queensland.
0: Obviously, the great promise of Soviet internationalism is the idea of transforming the world by making the world safe for the proletariat and creating a new social and economic system that would be based around the control of the workers and the abolition of capital. Problem for the entire Soviet model is that, in fact, it's the dirty little secret of Soviet-style socialism. It actually involves significant degrees of labour repression. It actually involves significant degrees of keeping wages low and keeping the workers very much under the heel. So solidarity, when it develops, is uh, is essentially it is a labour union movement that develops in Poland at that time. It's not simply though a labour movement that is focused purely on bread and butter issues. Uh, you've got obviously at the time in terms of, like from a global perspective. Around this time, you've got John Paul II, who is tapping into that very deep well of Polish Catholic nationalism that continues to be very influential in Poland even today. So you have this combination, which to the Soviets eventually proves completely toxic, of a labor movement pushing back against Soviet repression that is tapping into... Polish nationalism that is also harnessing a lot of the suppressed piety of Catholicism in Poland at the time. So you've got this really interesting tendency where you've got a variety of movements that are mobilised by different things, but a combination of pushing back against the Soviets' tough economic policies, but also tapping into two of the most powerful traditional forces in European politics, religion and nationalism. And elsewhere in the rapidly changing communist world, in the freest election in Poland since the Second World War, Solidarity has scored a spectacular result. It claims it's won all the seats it was allowed to contest in the lower house and most of those in the Senate. Lech is successful in Olympics being Olympics. elected in Poland, the first, realistically, the first democratic elections in that country pretty much ever. And the world doesn't end the sky doesn't fall in for the Soviet Union. So there is a sense at that time that Poland, absolutely key to the system that the Soviets have set up, that there isn't a sense that this loosening of the political grip there has been necessarily immediately catastrophic. And it starts to encourage a sense on the part of the Soviet Union, not that they will give up their empire in Eastern Europe. And I think we tend to forget how rapidly... The movement develops in Eastern Europe in that latter part of 1989. But there is a sense of saying we can loosen our grip and it won't immediately lead to a dissolution of all control.
1: Events in Hungary and Poland showed that change was happening. Governments could make momentous choices, like having elections, like dismantling the border, and the Soviets were going to let them do it. These events set off a chain reaction that leads us all the way to Berlin in November 1989. As soon as the border was opened between Austria and Hungary, it created a major problem for East German authorities. East Germany had struggled for decades to prevent people from leaving. That's what caused the wall to be built in the first place. East Germans had always been allowed to travel relatively freely to Hungary. In fact, Hungary was a popular holiday destination. East Germans flocked to a place called Lake Balaton every year, enjoying the warm waters of the lake. Often they were able to meet West German family members there. Dr. Christina Spohr is a professor of international relations at the London School of Economics.
3: East Germans could only go on holiday in Eastern European states or in various places, uh, of course, inside East Germany. I mean, there wasn't really that much freedom where you could just necessarily go off where you wanted to go because, you know, you might be given coupons where you can go on holiday inside East Germany. You were trying to get permits to go on holiday in Hungary, on the Black Sea, Bulgaria. You could go to Romania, to Poland. Basically, you were confined to the Soviet bloc in terms of foreign travel. And then you must always imagine that, you know, you, you you sort of, you aren't really free to go just anywhere, you know, you have to have very clear places where you are going and where you're going to stay and for how long you're going to stay. Everything is very regulated.
1: I'm Sarah Percy, and in this special series for RN, we're hearing some of the stories which explain the end of the Cold War and looking at why they still matter today. We've heard about the superpower rivalry, the dissent and protest which tore down the wall from the inside, the crumbling Soviet economy, and a leader willing to do things differently. 1989 is the year these stories converge. In the summer of 1989, there were tens of thousands of East Germans in Hungary. The presence of so many didn't go unnoticed by the Hungarian authorities. Hungary had been pushing for greater freedoms during the whole of 1989. All those East Germans were posing a problem for the Hungarians, but also a solution. The authorities were worried about what might happen if all the East German holidaymakers stayed on in Hungary claiming asylum. And they also recognized that for all their tentative attempts to create a democracy to be successful, the whole system really needed to change. But that meant the Eastern Bloc needed to collapse, and for that, East Germany needed to collapse. If a large number of these East German visitors could be persuaded to cross the border into Austria, it would solve the problem of so many refugees. If a lot of East Germans were allowed to leave, it would test the Soviets. Were they going to intervene or not? And it would put the East German regime under enhanced political pressure. In August 1989, the Hungarians decided to do what anyone would do when faced with a delicate political situation they organized a picnic. The Pan-European picnic was set up to encourage people to experience a world without borders. Maps were printed of the picnic site on the Austrian border. Buses were organized. People would come to the picnic and the border would be symbolically opened. People could go for a walk on the Austrian side and hopefully some of them would stay there.
3: At that picnic, which is, you know, really to sort of celebrate Austro-Hungarian get-together by the boundary, actually the East Germans who are on holiday nearby get informed that this picnic will, ha- will be happening and that as part of the picnic you can also go across to Austria. And, you know, it's a sort of folkloristic, nice picnic events, and people wear the national dresses of that, of that uh, region, the Burgenland. And, you know, and actually many East Germans, you know, first stay around and then they are given even sort of, you know, privately mapped of how to get to Austria and they go to this picnic and they use the opportunity of the picnic to run across to Austria. And there's lots of images that we have that you know, really sort of give you the sense how these people, were making a run for freedom.
1: The plan was a great success. It was such a success that the Hungarian government had a wobble. Should they arrest those leaving and detain them, which is what they used to do and what the East Germans were now angrily demanding that they should do? Or should they hold fast and let them go? there was a lot of touring and throwing in Hungary about.
3: They knew, of course, that once you take the, the wire away, you have quite a few East Germans who will who will so-called escape to try to reach um, Austria and to get to the West. And, of course, from the East German perspective, from the regime's perspective, it was considered, you know, republikflucht, you know, fleeing fleeing the, the, the country, fleeing the republic, um, as, they, as they, you know, called it. And uh, Hungarians were in a dilemma, you know, what about human rights? What about, you know, the freedom of of, of, of what people want. Technically, the Hungarians, uh, under the sort of um, Soviet bloc rule, were meant to return anybody who was trying to run away from East Germany at the border back and and ship them back to the GDR. But the Hungarians had then changed their law that they wouldn't do that anymore. And of course, that gave Germans a sort of sense that they should use every opportunity if that's the way they were inclined to run to the West. What the East German regime did afterwards was to close and ask, ask the Czechoslovakia to close the border with Hungary so that the East Germans who were in Czechoslovakia trying to reach Hungary couldn't reach Hungary anymore. So by that, basically, the Hungarian loophole
1: was closed. Hungary decided to let people continue on the path to freedom. And this created a major problem for the East German authorities. The borders of the Iron Curtain were beginning to disintegrate. During the month of September, 13,000 East Germans fled to the West through Hungary.
3: I heard the Iron Curtain is dropped down, I don't don't know how to say, (laughs) and I thought, that's my chance. I have to go.
1: This created an immense problem for the East German authorities. After all, the wall had been built to prevent such escapes. Now people were going around the wall and rushing to freedom. The East Germans closed the borders with Hungary. But then people fled through Czechoslovakia, creating another crisis. The mass departures of so many Germans were actually the second major problem facing the regime. In early September, a church in Leipzig began organizing protests every Monday night, demanding democracy, free speech, and freedom of movement. On the 4th of September, there were a thousand people. Three weeks later, there were 25,000. The more the authorities tried to prevent people leaving through Hungary or Czechoslovakia, the larger the crowds became. By October, there were 70,000 people, and the protests were spreading to other East German cities. Eric Honecker, the longtime leader, had been forced out, but still the protests continued. The people
0: are in an unforgiving mood. Tonight in Leipzig, they carried a coffin inscribed SED, the initials of the Communist Party. But a flame has been lit here that threatens to consume East German communism.
3: Those East Germans who still want to flee now start flooding into the West German embassy in Prague up to 3000 people, plus people sort of staying around. And you see, it becomes a humanitarian crisis. And even those who are still in Hungary also stay in these tents. And so the Red Cross gets involved. And then of course, you know, what do you do when in an embassy with a couple of toilets and not enough food, you have 3000 people, families with small children, all, you know, living in the squalor of the back garden of the embassy. That is really the story of, of September. Those East Germans, you know, who who sort of were driving into into Czechoslovakia to, to in some ways, force their government to find a way out of East Germany. There's other people who say, well, actually, we don't want to run away. We stay here. But we stay here and we want, um, you know, to protest for what we want, which is the freedom of travel and the freedom of speech. So these people are now demonstrating initially carefully, initially a few thousand and then over the course of September uh, all the way to the 9th of October when, for example, in Leipzig, uh, on that particular Monday, you have 70,000 people demonstrating. And remember, I said, you know, people were not allowed to really gather. So people would gather in the churches and then they began to go out and demonstrate and they held candles and it was really very peaceful. But it was all about them saying, we stay here, we're not running away. But when we stay here, we want change.
1: On the 4th of November, 1989, 500,000 people came to protest in front of the Berlin Wall. The authorities had to do something to contain the situation. The best they could come up with was a way to figure out how to open the borders. The East German government met and determined a course of action.
4: The government starts debating reforms, including of the law on travel, while the government also realizes they are in dire financial straits. And the new leader, Egon Krenz, goes to Moscow trying to get help from Gorbachev. And Gorbachev says, we're in trouble too. We can't help you. You should ask West Germany. (laughs) So, um, you know, all these things come together. And in early November, the East German government starts drafting a new travel law that is, in fact, really only a travel law for people who want to permanently leave the country. It's not really a new travel law on people who just want to go visit, you know, a relative or a friend or just to see the sites the dramatic developments of November 9th then occur. Okay, so the key points on November 9th when ultimately the wall is gonna fall that night, but no one knows that. It is so important to understand this was a mistake. It was not what was supposed to happen. So the government had debating this new travel law the key spokesman for the party who was a member of the ruling body of the communist party in east germany gunter schabowski was not at the key meeting of the leadership in the afternoon of november 9th he came in very late to the meeting before his planned international press conference And, you know, he just sort of grabbed some papers from his colleagues about what he was supposed to announce. And as I always tell my students, this is a major lesson in why it is important to be well prepared when you give a presentation, uh, especially on live TV. So he gets to the international press conference and he talks about a variety of things that you know, the leadership is thinking of reforms. And then at the very end, he starts talking about this new travel law. Um, and he's very vague and just says that you know, there will be new regulations because they understand people want to visit the West. And so when someone sa- asks him, you know, well, what does this mean for the Berlin Wall? Will the Berlin Wall be open? And he looks down in a confused way at his notes and he says, yes, the Berlin Wall will be open.
0: Das tritt nach meiner Kenntnis ist das sofort,
4: unverzüglich. Wie die Presseabteilung
0: des Ministeriums hat der Ministerrat beschlossen, And
2: that was the beginning of the end. So what happened then was that, ironically, the regime that had exercised such minute control over every aspect of everyone's life, in the moment that it was trying to control its own end, resulted in absolute chaos. And that's why everybody who got word of that from the news on television that evening ran and stormed all of the checkpoints from the eastern side trying to get to the west. The eastern border guards had received no orders as to what to do. There was no preparation. So in the state of ultimate control was absolutely losing control. And some border guards couldn't believe what was happening and took it on themselves then to to require people to show their identity documents, the East Germans who were flooding through to the West, and they instituted off the cuff their own system where they would stamp the identity papers of, as they put it, the most importunate, you know, the, the, the those who were happiest or most euphoric to be leaving on the left-hand side because they planned later to deny them re-entry to their own homes. So that is the degree of kind of inculcation of perfidy in the minds of, of these people at the same time as they are absolutely losing control.
1: On the 9th of November, 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. <laughs>
0: Like all the changes that have swept East Germany recently, the beginning of the end for the Berlin Wall came much sooner than was expected. Cold War divisions have decisively crumbled.
4: This hole in the wall, along with four others, will provide
0: new crossings to the West by train, bus, and car. The rest of the wall will remain for the moment, but an important barrier has been breached. <laughs>
1: This is where all the stories we've heard meet. Protesters in their thousands were brave enough to risk repression and keep protesting until they could no longer be ignored. The Soviets have been economically crippled, in part by attempting to keep up in the superpower competition with the United States. Gorbachev, a new type of leader, tried to solve the problems of the Soviet Union in a way that encouraged criticism of the regime people began to protest even more, and Gorbachev decided to let the Eastern European Empire go peacefully in order to preserve the USSR itself. Gorbachev had unleashed political forces, which were really potent, you know, and puissant. Kyle Wilson is a visiting fellow at the Australian National University and a former diplomat. And they were surging ahead, and no one could keep up with them. Gorbachev certainly couldn't none of us could and you know we were we always felt and i think journalists understand this very well you know that you're behind the game you know the events are galloping ahead because these forces have been unleashed that no one can control and they have to be seen through to their end you know the soviet union broke up without a civil war there was relatively little
0: bloodshed the number of people who died are probably in their hundreds not their thousands and this was some kind of miracle
1: And luck also mattered. If the Soviet Union hadn't been led by Gorbachev, who wasn't willing to follow decades of Soviet tradition and crush protests, if the Hungarians hadn't decided to open their borders, if a spokesperson at a press conference had given out the correct information, the Cold War might not have ended for years, or it might have ended violently. And of course, one question worth asking is, did everything really end in 1989?
4: The month after that, Bush and Gorbachev met at Malta and they declared the Cold War was over in December of 1989. So that's a pretty important moment. It would take the Soviet Union itself two years to till it ceased to exist in December of 1991. but. You know, certainly that winter of 1989-90, the Cold War certainly looked to be over. And of course, that's true. When the wall came down, it was the symbol
1: that the Soviets weren't going to keep the empire intact, and that the regimes of Eastern Europe could no longer control people. But there are other ways we still see the Cold War influencing politics and life today.
0: We see it everywhere. I think we see it in particular in the form of a sudden former superpower in the form of Vladimir Putin's Russia. I think particularly in the West we look back uh, with a degree of nostalgia at 1989 as the supposed end of history. There's the collapse of the Berlin Wall. You've got David Hasselhoff singing. There's sense that we've had this great triumph, end of history. Here we are. You've always got to look at it from the other person's perspective. And it is telling that if we look at someone like Vladimir Putin, he says the collapse of the Soviet Union was the greatest geopolitical disaster of the 20th century.
1: We always like to look at history for lessons. It's a tricky thing to do. The past isn't exactly like the present. And as we've seen, a lot of constellations had to line up at the right moment in 1989 for things to change. There is a lot of luck in major historical transformations but there are lessons to be had from the end of the Cold War.
0: I think one of the greatest lessons that we can take out of the Cold War is that it ended ultimately as a result of restraint and mutual concessions from the parties, but that it was immediately succeeded in the early 90s and from the early 1990s onwards by a degree of hubris on the part of the West of saying, well, we agree that this was not a one-sided capitulation, but rather it was a cooperative effort to resolve a conflict that wasn't in anyone's interests. I think one of the unintended and somewhat tragic consequences at the end of the Cold War is that if you'd asked most people in November 1989 where they would see Russia-US relations today, they would be surprised at the level of antagonism and tension that exists there. And I think the reason that that matters is that it is all too easy to forget Russia might be a country that these days has an economy only slightly bigger than that of Australia. It is also, along with the United States, still remains one of two nuclear superpowers in the international system. So I think that's one of the great tragic consequences of the Cold War. And I think a reminder of it's not simply the effect of the Cold War itself, but the misunderstood lessons of victory that were internalized by Western states people at the end of that that have helped to shape the world that we now live in.
1: There's a lot of hope in the story of the end of the Cold War. People fought for change and at a huge cost, but they got the change they wanted. There is also a warning. It's really easy to be complacent about democracy when you live in one. All over the world, people are less convinced than ever that democracy matters. Research done at Harvard University and the University of Melbourne has demonstrated that the younger people are, the less likely they are to agree with the statement that it is essential
2: to live in a democracy. Democracies vary greatly. Some are better than others. They are all flawed in one way or another, but they are all better than the alternatives. So perhaps the single most important lesson
1: we should learn from the Cold War and how it ended is that democracy matters. If people had been less committed to freedom, if they'd quit protesting when their freedoms were denied, the protests that ultimately brought down the wall might never have happened. If Gorbachev's reforms had never happened, the free speech those reforms introduced wouldn't have chipped away at the Iron Curtain. We need to remember that freedom is an essential component of democracy and never take it for granted. I'm Sarah Percy and that is why the Cold War still matters. If you missed any of the episodes in this special four-part series, you can catch them on the ABC Listen app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The producer for this series is Edwina Stott and the sound engineer is Steve Fieldhouse.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.
3: Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.